episode number 28 of the Media Narrative Podcast. I'm Rob Hoschild. Well, it's been a couple of weeks. Sorry about that. Since my last episode, we're more than a month into the new year, 2019, and I'm already realizing how challenging this idea of doing one podcast every single week is. So like this one, uh, there may be the occasional off week. Um, as you know, I'm a teacher. All you teachers out there know how busy the beginning of the semester can be. But I'm going to do everything I can to just keep pumping out episodes because it's fun and I appreciate you listening. The last episode was an interview with guitarist Duke Levine. That one was really fun. It was the first one I'd done with an actual live music performing component. Duke played his 53 telly during that interview. I'm realizing how many of these interviews I'm doing are music focused. And it may make sense at some point to split this into two podcasts, one that's media focused and one that's music focused for now just going to keep on trucking. My next episode will be a more media focused one. It'll be an interview with photographer and artist Liz Linder. Uh, it'll be my first with a visual artist and Liz really has some interesting ideas about media. So I'm looking forward to that one. Um, as you have likely figured out, this particular episode is one of those semi quick solo episode. As you know, I like to ask media makers about their challenges and process, but I'm going to turn that kind of inquiry on myself for a minute here in relation to my work in radio, but in a way I hope that I think ultimately relates to anyone doing any kind of work. What I'm talking about is voice in the literal way, sure, radio, but more in the way that voice implies one's mission, ideas, and authentic self. It's on my mind quite a bit right now because I've just started a new radio gig. My professional radio work has been mostly in news, but as I've mentioned here, I've just started hosting a music show a couple of weeks ago on WUMB here in Boston, a music show focused on roots music and soul and blues and rock and folk and bluegrass. Um, currently going through a process of rediscovering my voice on this radio station. It's a rediscovery of my voice that I feel like I'm going through for the umpteenth time in my life. Umpteenth. Where did that word come from, by the way? I always think of umpires when I hear that term. You know what? I'm going to pause this for a second and look it up. Okay, I looked it up. This is from a website called EnglishStackExchange.com. Umpteenth. This is a quote from this website. Several reference books agree with the assertion that umpty originated as a Morse code term from Robert Hendrickson, the Facts on File Encyclopedia of Word and Phrase Origins, which he published in 2000. Here's the, the definition from that book of umpteenth. Umpteenth may derive from M or umpty in early Morse code, which signified a dash. By this theory, umpty came to mean, quote, large or many because M, umpty, was associated with the Latin M, a thousand. Adding teen for 10 to a shortened umpty, the result was umpteen, many tens, meaning a very large number, and umpteenth. Okay, so there you go. There's where umpteenth came from. I'm so glad we've got that behind us. Okay, so when I used umpteenth a moment ago, I was exaggerating. It's not really tens of times or thousands of times, but a lot. This issue of voice and radio and many other professional situations has come up a lot for me. My obsession with radio goes back to my childhood in the Philadelphia suburbs. First, it was listening to the Phillies baseball on the radio. Then the 76ers, that's basketball. Then music on local radio stations like WFIL, AM, and WMMR, FM. 
But really, it started with listening to those baseball games late at night. Harry Callis and Richie Ashburn, they were the announcers at the mics, turning every game into, to my ear, a really good story. I used to like making my own little radio programs at home using one of those old Panasonic recorders, you know, where you press down the record and play button at the same time and off you go. In college, I hosted a jazz show at UMass Amherst called Morning Euphonia. Talk about your pretentious radio show names. When I listen back to those Morning Euphonia tapes, I hear a kid who had no identifiable voice. But does anyone know, know who they are at 19 or 20? I do remember having fun, but when I listen to those old cassettes, I hear someone who knows nothing about jazz and is often, for some reason, sporting a ever-so-slight Boston accent. Remember that part about growing up near Philadelphia? Well, let's listen to a little bit of one of these radio shows. This is from 1984. And at the top of that set, we heard a, a couple tunes from Spira Gyra. The first one was Morning Dance, a Jay Beckenstein composition, and after that, Old San Juan, also composed by Beckenstein. And Spira Gyra uh, recorded this, these, this album, uh, Access All Areas, November of 1983 in Florida. And uh, that was on uh, a similar sound to their recent tour where they hit UMass last spring. Jay Beckenstein, Sachs. All right, that, that, that's enough. Did you hear me say November in there? You know, I mean, clearly, uh, I don't know what I was doing, but um, hey, you know, I was having some fun. So after graduating, I worked briefly in sales and then high-tech PR, wearing the suit, having the cheese, to quote a Brantford Marsalis downbeat interview that I read from those days. That's really what it felt like. I thought he characterized that perfectly. Talking about his son, I was in a place that I probably shouldn't have been wearing the suit, having the cheese. What he said perfectly characterized how far away I felt like I was from my authentic self or voice at that time. In the late 80s, I started working in radio professionally for the first time, afternoon news guy at WCIB in Falmouth, Mass. When I started, I still sounded like a hungover college kid trying to play with radio, but my news director, John Delisandro, was his name. I wonder where he is today. D'Alessandro painstakingly taught me how to sound like a radio professional, like a radio news announcer, someone who would emphasize certain words to make it easy for the listener to follow along. For example, I'm going to pull this one out and put this one in. You'll hear how um, pretty bad I was at the beginning. Point nine FM is Light 102. Good morning, it's 801. I'm Rob Allen, and here's what's happening. New reports on the Stewart shooting say there was a second witness the night that Carol Stewart was fatally shot and her husband Charles wounded. The Boston Herald reports today that a friend was in the car with Matthew Stewart when his brother Charles passed him Carol Stewart's handbag with a gun in it. All right, well, besides the fact that I sound like I'm running out of air and I sound a little bit too excited to be talking about this, one of the most serious murder stories ever in the history of Boston that I was reporting during that newscast down on the Cape. Um, lost my train of thought there. But you can see, uh, you know, I had a lot of room to grow. I really did not sound like I knew what I was doing. So I was getting this feedback from my news director, John DeLisandro. And I used to listen to 8.80 a.m. 
radio out of New York and mimic those announcers. I would actually record their new shows, transcribe the words and emphases, and try to sound like a radio news professional. Yeah, I would actually spend my time listening back to tapes, writing down everything they said, and trying to do exactly what they did. I guess that's how you learn. I also practiced saying the letter W at that time because when I was in college, I called my radio station WMUA. And when I started that first job on Cape Cod, I called it WCIB, WW. But John DeLisandro sat me down one day and made me practice that one letter, WW. It's not WW, it's WWWW. So I would drive my car around Cape Cod going WWWW. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. That's part of what I did with my time. But this was how I was learning to develop a voice that I thought... I was supposed to possess to have the right polish to sound like an acceptable commercial radio news professional. Next, I took a job at WKVA AM in central Pennsylvania, a country station. I was news director and spent a lot more time on the air and got better at projecting the sound of the serious news announcer. I got to uh, get away from standard reports and newscasts doing long-form stories and series, reports from 4-H fairs and art shows. And maybe a little bit was starting to relax into something like my own voice. But then I got out of radio. I was only making $16,000 a year in that last job, supervising a, a, a little team. It was 1990, but still, I was ready to try something else. So I worked as a newspaper reporter, did more PR work, started working in higher ed. And this thing about voice, about projecting your authentic self, it continued to be a challenge. I found that in the, the workplace, in meetings, I would be unwilling or unable to articulate extemporaneously the thoughts inside my head. When I tried, it would all come out jumbled and I would sound like an idiot. I thought I used to be able to do this in radio, but the truth is I usually had scripts and without them, I struggled. I also struggled because I was always trying to figure out what everyone wanted to hear from me. I thought that was the way to be a good collaborator, a good teammate. It's not. Speaking your own truth, kindly, thoughtfully, that's the way to go. I just didn't know that yet. Then, at one point, I decided I wanted to get back into radio, at least on a part-time basis. And that's when it started to change again for me. I was an evening and weekend news announcer on WBUR, a public radio station in Boston, late 90s. You've probably noticed a difference between the way news people on public radio sound as compared to news people in commercial radio. Although, come to think of it, you're probably not even listening to news on commercial radio anymore. I, I, I know that I'm not. Uh, so I assume that everyone listening to this podcast, if they listen to news on the radio, they're probably listening to public radio news. But back then, in my mind, there was a clear difference. Commercial radio news people sounded intense or bright and bouncy with a whole lot of emphasis. What I was trying to do when I first started at that Cape Cod station. But the public radio people were more laid back, meandering, even mellifluous. They generally had more time and could be more themselves. So there I was on public radio in that environment where you can be more yourself and still I didn't feel like I was my authentic self. But then I got some advice that changed everything. It came from a friend, my then roommate, a jazz singer named Trudy Sandhouse. She said, when I hear you on the radio, your voice sounds higher than it usually does. Now, I had been listening to my air check tapes and I thought she was nuts. I hadn't noticed that, but then I recorded myself hanging out and talking to her at home and went back and listened to the air tapes, and she was right. Just picture me sitting on the other side of the mic when you're on the air, she said, and I bet your voice will sound lower and you'll feel more like yourself. And she was right. Again. Thank you, Trudy. What's interesting about this is 
that the physical sensation of feeling the vibration of my actual voice, feeling it in my throat, in my chest, hearing it in my headphones, actually helped me to feel a lot more like I was a person. Myself, for example, in those live on the air moments and not someone who was playing a role or an employee performing some particular task fitting into some larger hole. So let's listen to that tape. This is uh, 2000 after I think I'd started to get the hang of it. I'm Chad Pergram, National Public Radio News in Washington. From Boston University, this is WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Ford Foundation, a resource for people and institutions worldwide. It's 11.06. So there you go. A little more uh, like myself. So we work in collaborative work environments. We do have to conform to the needs of the whole to a certain degree, but those collaborations go a lot better, I think, when those compromises go hand in hand with full-on expression of self. Those feelings helped me to grow in the workplace, away from radio, when I was getting more responsibility, becoming a manager, running a communications operation, and it helped me to make a transition to teacher, a job, frankly, that I had never felt suited to do before all of this. And, you know, as far as teaching is concerned, just being yourself, speaking honestly and openly from the heart, sharing what you know and what you've experienced, that really turns out to be a good way to go. So now I have this new part-time gig in radio, hosting Sunday Morning Brew, 8 a.m. to noon, every Sunday on WUMB in Boston. You can stream it, by the way, from wherever you are at WUMB.org. I've spent the bulk of my time in the past several months and in the days leading up to each show really focusing on the music, the artists, who they are, trying to curate the music as best as I can, making the selections and selecting the kind of information that I think is going to help listeners sort of get more engaged with the music. I know some of the music well and some of it less so, and the preparation, the sense of curation, it is important. But I'm also realizing that what's really key to making this work is to just turn on the mic and be myself. It should be easy. I like the music I'm playing, and as long as I convey that, I'm good. And if I stray, I'll know it, you'll know it if I get distracted. So in your work, be it media or not, if you're struggling to get your own ideas out there, to be yourself in an environment that otherwise feels alien. Take a breath, picture a friend, do whatever it takes to have that feeling like I did when my actual voice dropped into place and I became myself, maybe for the first time. This episode was edited by me. The theme music was written and composed by Matt Jensen. Sign up for the newsletter and subscribe to the podcast at themedianarrative.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Rob. meters from the finish but I think the wind could help the runners right now it's blowing towards the finish line beautiful view out here over Vineyard Sound on this sunny day but I don't think the runners are going to be thinking about that too much they will have just completed Falmouth's version of Heartbreak Hill uh, it's a spot of the race that's often been a real key part where the front runners juggle positions back in 84 Mark Kerb had a lead coming into this section before he was taken over by Dave Murphy started to charge here and wound up winning the race by two seconds the closest finish ever